Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Well, uh, Mr. Pfeiffer. You must be Kristen's ex-husband. You must be. You don't forget to call Melanie Parker. Thunderline three times. Taxi! Wait, 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 wait! There's this guy who has not only ruined my day, but Sammy's as well. Your mom hates your dad. So, my dad hates your mom. Just want to know if you're wearing panties. Huh? What say I watch the kids while you do your presentation, and then you watch it for me later on the day while I do the column? I only let incredibly responsible people watch my I'm son. I'm incredibly responsible. You hungry, Daddy? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pfeiffer Fridays, where we walk you through the films of one Michelle Pfeiffer, and every F word automatically has a silent P. I'm Jerry Downey. And I am Michael McLean. And today we're covering the third installment of our 1996 miniseries, which is 1996's One Fine Day, starring George Clooney, Mae Whitman, Alex B. Lenz, Charles Durning, Ellen Green, Holland Taylor host of people, as well as Michelle Pfeiffer as Melanie Parker. Michael, is this your first viewing of One Fine Day? Yes, it is. I had never heard of it until um, we decided to go with Michelle Pfeiffer as our podcast subject. Really? Yeah, I had never, of course, I'd heard this song, One Fine Day by Carole King, which I didn't know was going to be used so much in the movie. Um, so I just thought, oh, it's just the same title as that Carol King song. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so funny. But then the movie uses that song. Yeah, I'd never really heard of it, never seen it until now. For some bizarre reason, like when I, when I got my copy from the library, I had a vivid memory of seeing this on rental shelves at, at Blockbuster and such. Like I remembered the cover really well, more than likely because it was George Clooney and, and Michelle Pfeiffer and I knew those two people. But yeah, I, I had never seen it before either. This was my first time as well. Wow, okay. So I guess was this, well, up close and personal, was it this year was the first watch for you for that one too? I did watch it for the first time this year, um, but watching it for the podcast was my second okay. viewing because I watched it for the first time back like when the pandemic started-ish. So we're talking April, May-esque. I really like it. It's, it is a charming movie. Like it is, it is just a delightful rom-com. I really thought for some reason it was a drama. A drama? <laughs> I don't like that. And, and a poster like that. How can you, it possibly be a fine day when it tells us that in the title? Drama, you know, maybe one of them had an illness, you know, or... <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. Um, and maybe, I think because it, the best original song nominee from this one is I Finally Found Some... Is that the title of it? I finally found uh, someone or? It is, it's akin to that. Okay. Let me make sure, but go, go on with what you were thinking. It like, that just sounded like, you know. <laughs> oh, someone I, has died. I finally found someone and then they're gone. That's just what it's felt like to me. Um, so imagine my surprise and delight when I put it on and we began the film with the jaunty one fine day. 
So original song was actually called for the first time, but I feel like I finally found you may have been nominated that same year, but from a different movie. Okay. Because it sounds familiar to me too. And we've only been looking at 1996 nominees. From that's the Barbara Streisand song. Oh, is that mirror had two faces? I think so. Let me see. Maybe that's what I'm confusing it with. Yeah, I finally found someone from the mirror has two faces. It's it's because we've been on the 1996 kick. Exactly. Like it sounds familiar because it's from 1996. I even listened. I even watched through the end credits because I knew that that's when they would put this song. Oh yeah. Show us how how forgettable that song is. well, in, in the grand scheme of Oscar-nominated 1996 Michelle Pfeiffer songs, uh, Because You Love Me from Up Close and Personal is certainly the more memorable of the two. I think it might be my turn to do a plot description. I, I believe it is. Okay. Do, <laughs> you, want to you always have this look of, of fear in your eyes whenever the synopsis comes up. Do you want your timer or will that just make your terror rise? Uh, I, I think when I did for to Jillian, when we did Jillian, I I think I did a great job with that with the timer. So, so so you're saying you would like the timer? I would like the timer and see if I can just repeat my success. Okay. Uh, are you ready? Yes. Okay, and go. Okay, it is one fine day in New York City. See what I did there? So we have- um, That was literally 10 seconds of your time. We have Michelle Pfeiffer as Melanie Parker. She is stressed. She works at an architecture firm. And then we have George Clooney as Jack, (laughs) I forget his last name. And he is a columnist for the New York, some newspaper in New York City. Um, And I think they live in the same building. And lo and behold, one, it's just they um they have there's like a carpool with their kids going on. I forget who, you know, one of them has to go be dropped off at George Clooney's, or George Clooney has to drop off his kid at Michelle's, and then um they're like, oh crap, they're running late. And so then they um they miss the boat at the circle line for the field trip, and the whole day goes to shit. It's nineteen ninety six. So that, that was your 60 seconds. I think we covered an hour and a half of, of the fine day. <laughs> Pretty much, I mean, the day goes to shit, really. <laughs> so why, why don't you give us a little further rundown about this day? <laughs> it's a very important day in their, in their lives, of course it is. Um, Melanie has a really big presentation to give for um, prospective clients. And of course she has to drag her adorable child along with her because they missed the field trip. So they really don't want to go put these kids in a daycare center because apparently it's, um, you know, fight club in there for some reason. Yeah. That, that daycare is the hunger games. It's ridiculous. They like say that, um, they would call that little boy the F word. Yeah. Terrible. So I get it. You know, the last place I want to put my kid is that drop-off center. Yeah, we don't go to homophobic daycare. No. Absolutely not. And then George Clooney, his very important day, he, um, he's trying to expose, um, corruption in a mayor's re-election campaign. 
and one of his, his big source has fallen through. And so they're gonna have to print a retraction. And I imagine this is George Clooney's umpteenth retraction that they've had to print for this paper. That's so, certainly what it sounds like. He's in danger of losing his job. So it's very important. And because they don't have a field trip to drop their kids off at, they have to keep on swapping off these kids. Yeah. That way they don't have to be submit, submitted to um, the daycare hunger games, which I understand. So it's... Um, <laughs> Do you, do you have bad memories of, of daycare hunger games? I remember daycare for me um, just being very confusing and um, very much left to my own devices, I think. I don't remember really playing with a lot of the other kids. I just remember like staying with like the dress up bin and just like being oh. off in the corner on the playground and then at movie time like just like being really loving that. But other than that, not, not really yeah. participating much in daycare. Find your safe space. Yeah. I, I, I don't remember a lot of daycare, but it certainly wasn't, you know, superhero day where, where if I didn't have a costume, I was going to be um, thrown in the cornucopia. <laughs> so can we talk for a quick second about the opening credits of this movie? Sure. So, like, you go into this movie knowing because of the cover that Michelle Pfeiffer and George Clooney are the leads. Cool. I knew none of the other cast when I started this movie. Just those two. And the next name up was Mae Whitman. And I was just like, Mae Whitman must have been a baby. And indeed she was. Like, she came on screen. I was just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> And I have to say, she's an excellent child actress. She and Alex D. Lenz are precious. And like, I feel like 90s and early 2000s children in movies are unnecessarily aggravating. Mm -hmm. Either because they can't act or because their characters are literally just there to be an aggravation to both their parents and the audience. Yes. And you just like, these are the two most adorable children you could ever find. And do they do dumb shit? Sure they do. But like by, by and large, you really love them just as much as their parents do, which is awesome for this movie. Yes. Um, I wasn't as keen on Alex D. Lins because I, when children get into like their messes and scrapes in on movies, I'm always like, don't just sit down and stop touching things. But <laughs> I just, that's me, literally, maybe not physically like what I just did, but internally, I'm very much like, stop, sit down, child, and mind your manners. But it does grow on you. Absolutely. But and like, the credits also keep going. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Because you have Charles Durning, who's always great. But then out of nowhere comes Ellen Green. So I was already very excited because Ellen Green should be featured in everything. Out of nowhere comes Amanda Peet. Mm -hmm. And then the final three names, which is when I really did my loud gay gasp, was Biddy Schram of League of Their Own, No Crying in Baseball fame. Fucking Holland Taylor, which yes, all the yes. 
and my beloved Rachel York, mm -hmm. who I feel like I see in things but is never credited. So I was, I was very excited into my homosexual soul for those three ladies. She got a, she got a title card. Yes. I am here for this movie already. Yes. Um, also, shout out to Gregory Javara. Yes. We, we love Gregory Javara. He and Rachel York from Victor Victoria, like, basically just left the marquee and came to shoot this movie in 96. Um, yeah, it's just, it's an embarrassment of New York theater riches. Mm-hmm. And speaking of New York, I always feel it's stupid when people say New York was its own character in this movie. But I do feel like it plays a very important part in these people's days. And I feel like New York is portrayed in this movie really accurately to my mind in terms of how it looks and how yeah. hectic it can feel. Um, you never have one of those scenes here where magically they are the only four people on the street in the middle of a school day in New York. There, it is always filled with people. It is nonstop. It, and it gave me Nora Ephron vibes a little bit. The beautiful apartments and, and everything. But I feel like Nora Ephron's version of New York is very much... Um, just the Upper West Side almost. Just cut out the Upper West Side and that's Nora Ephron's New York. But this felt like it gave a more accurate picture. Like you said, New York during rush hour. I felt that. As yeah. they're trying to get to their various meetings and things. Um, and, and then it starts to rain. And then if, you know, she's trying to get a cab. Yeah, it felt very, very real. And I really yeah. appreciated it. And the fact that Michelle gets through her day looking a little frazzled and getting spills on herself and... Um, Everything they eat winds up on her clothing in some fashion. Yeah, because she's a mom and that's what's going to happen, I think. Yeah. So I really appreciated that. Um, because it wouldn't have been awful if it was just like, if they're at serendipity and it's just like, she's pristine. Right. Like, I dare you to go to Serendipity and not get any of that frozen hot chocolate on yourself. I, I do appreciate that because you have two leading performers sort of at peak sexy mm -hmm. of, of their careers. And, but they don't, I'm trying to think of the right word. They, they don't judge them up uh, at yeah. all. Like they're, they very much just allow them to be which which is is great. I, I love it. They're beautiful already. There's really not much to right. Even if even Michelle getting caught in the rain with her mascara running, I'm like her like her meltdown in that police station is perfection. That's that's the scene you have to do for the outro. I hope you know that. Oh, absolutely. Horrible to him all day. Just, exactly. just shouting. She, she exactly. needs to find the child of the man that she is very attracted to, and she needs it now, please. Either use that scene or use Rachel York saying, I'm the CEO of this household. God bless Rachel York. One scene. Just one. Very top. Like, we, <laughs> we got all Rachel York excitement at the very top, and then we could focus on everything else. 
which if we're going to have Rachel York in a film, yeah, have her come in right at the beginning. It'll keep my attention. Please. Yes. Like, I sort of circling back to Alex D. Lenz. Oh, yes. I, I really felt his character at the top of the movie when he finds out that they're going to school with Maggie Mae Whitman's character and his only response is, I hate Maggie. She thinks she's so funny. And I was like, I've said that as an adult. <laughs> I, I have said that about people recently. <laughs> that, that line just, just got me right in the feels because I was like, I got you, kid. <laughs> I understand it. Me. I related to him a little bit too because the first scene I think is him is him and Michelle Pfeiffer. It, it's a bedtime, right? Is the first scene. Yeah, he really wants to stay up with her and not go to sleep, and she is not about it. Um, and then, of course, the, the, really, the really me part was, um, she says, good night, two minutes pass. He comes in and says, mommy, I had a bad dream. And she <laughs> says, you had a bad dream? You fell asleep and had a bad dream in two minutes? And I said, wow, looking in a mirror, because my mom called me out of my bed. I just put you to bed 10 minutes ago. You already had a bad dream. She would call me out like that. Mom, if you're listening, you know you did. And um, he had the fire engine in the bed, which reminded me of a tangent, if you'll mm. allow. Please. When I was little, I did a community theater production of It's a Wonderful Life over Christmas. And I was one of George Bailey's kids. I was Tommy Bailey, I think. He's like one of the really younger ones. And my only direction was to kind of crawl around on the carpet with my fire truck. Zoom, zoom, zoom around with my fire truck. And I remember the scene ended. It's, it's the scene when George Bailey comes home and he's thinking about- He I'm loses his shit at the, at the children. At Zuzu, I think, and, all, and, and Donner, poor Donna Reed. Anyway, um, so the scene ends and I go off stage and I think it was intentional on my part. I think I was this dramatic and this chaotic at that age that I pressed one of the lights on the fire engine. So during the blackout, during a quiet transition, you just hear fire engines going off. You, know? you, you needed your moment. I didn't, I like, I, my only lines were daddy, daddy. Like I wanted, I wanted more. <laughs> right. Tommy doesn't have pedals that get talked about. So you were just like, but he has his fire engine. Here you go, bitches. I, I wanted that fire engine to have a moment. Thank you. <laughs> so when poor Michelle like rolled over onto that fire truck, I was like, oh, do I remember? Do I remember? It's a wonderful life. <laughs> so, so basically what we're saying is that his character is growing is going to grow up to be a gay man. Yeah. I, I confirmed. 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 Um, Sammy Sammy Parker. Yeah, Sammy Parker is now living with his partner Kevin somewhere. Kevin from Tajillion. Oh God, we all, always like. I feel like we're going to be on episode thirty-seven, and something about Tajillion is is going to get brought up. It's the, it's the inescapable film for us. I'm glad, okay. <laughs> I got my It's Wonderful Life tangent out of the way. That was the one though, I put that at the top of my list. Michael, like, you wrote that down? <laughs> I did. I literally said, 
I literally said, reminder to tell Jerry about the fire engine going off during It's a Wonderful Life. I love that you just had to make sure that that was included. Yeah. Because I think community theater stories are the best stories. Yeah. I do have to say that one thing I really loved about this movie mm -hmm. is that it was very predictable but as soon as you reach the part that was predictable, they always managed to turn it on its head just a little bit. Like, yeah. I first noticed it when she is, so Michelle Pfeiffer's character is bringing this model to her boss's office, and Sammy is in the lobby doing a remote control car all around, and you're watching this scene knowing that she is going to trip over this car things are going to break it's going to be awful and she mods it and does this little like trot over the car uh -huh. everything's safe only to catch her foot on a bag and fall and do exactly what we expected to happen mm -hmm. but it was just that little little twist that it was not the car that actually tripped her that I was like okay like you 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 side side swipes me just a little bit yeah. Same with, spoiler alert, the, the ending itself, when they're finally, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer invites George Clooney and Mae Whitman over to the apartment. Everyone's there. Kiddos are watching Wizard of Oz in the bedroom. They finally kiss after this long, frazzled day. And you just know that these two hot people are going to go to town. That's how this, that's how this movie is going to end. Mm-hmm except Michelle Pfeiffer goes into the bathroom to pretty herself up only to come out and find George Clooney asleep on the couch. And mm -hmm. so she kind of nuzzles into him sort of like trying to wake him up thinking maybe, and then not only is he asleep, he is snoring only for her to conk out right next to him. And so again, like it felt very predictable that finally we were going to see these two hook up and that's, you know, sweet romantic ending of the movie. And no, they they pass out. <laughs> and yeah. and that's that's how we end. And wouldn't you after that day they had it's uh Yes. I thought it was a really very it was more tender to me than a makeout session would have been in the kitchen. It was very sweet. And with the kids, you know, finding them and the Wizard of Oz soundtrack in the background, like it was, it's, it's a really solid, sweet ending. Yes. Yeah, you're right. It does subvert a lot of the, because I, I agree with you. I totally saw in that lobby scene when she's going to get the model, he's playing with his little car. I said, oh. yeah, yeah. Um, even, I'm trying to think of another moment. Oh, even maybe, well, maybe even the part when they get to the um, the harbor with the circle line boat. At first I was like, oh my gosh, there's gonna be no boats there. Oh, there is a boat. They make it onto a boat. Oh, it's the boat with the senior it's still the wrong boat. And yeah. It's still the wrong boat. It's like they, they, they make it, but it's, oh, they're so close. It's, <laughs> there's little things like that, that um, you question, ooh, ooh, are they gonna be able to drop these kids off and then, Oh, it's still they've still missed it. So yeah. it leaves there's a little bit of little, little bit of suspense there, even these predictable tropes. Yeah. Well they they keep raising the stakes, which sounds odd to say about a pretty fluffy rom com. Mm -hmm. But 
you know from the outset that both of these characters already have very busy, and not just busy, very important days with stuff they have to get done. And then not only do they have to get that done, now they have the two kiddos to contend with. And on top of that, you know, she not only has her presentation, but then has to go get drinks with these clients after work. He not only has to find a new witness for his corruption byline, but he has to like track her down all over the city and make it to a press conference by a certain time. So all of these things start. And at the end of the day, they still have to get kiddo to a soccer game, <laughs> which is like peak stress time. So it's, it is, it is stressful in terms of what they are up against. And I think I think the disbelief is suspended just enough, but doesn't go overboard into making it completely fanciful. Yeah, I think towards the end there, I'd say, is when, when you've got the press conference, the drink meeting, and the game to get to. That's when I almost, I think I wrote in my letterbox review that that's when it starts to get a little bit geographically dicey. Yes. <laughs> because I was trying to pinpoint where they were. So I kind of tell they're obviously in the Midtown area. I think it's maybe around the time when they're having drinks, when she's having drinks with the clients and then they have to get to the game. I think they had about 10 minutes when she finished up with drinks to get to the game. And I was like, there's no way she could get to um, Central Park that fast and still make it in time for him to get his uniform on supposedly. And get him on the field. Right. And even with getting in the cab, getting her to the drinks as well, I'm like, I know Midtown traffic. There's no way she's getting across town in 10 minutes. (laughs) That's when the disbelief, like you said, we're pushing it. But it's not like a huge deterrent for me. Like, no, not really faulting it. Um, It's the magic of the movies. I um, I have to ask you a very important question. All right. And that question is, is horny Amanda Pete the best Amanda Pete? Funny enough, I didn't write anything down about her. Can you believe that? This movie, even for someone of like the stature of Charles Durning, this movie is just filled to the brim of peripheral characters. Yes. And I feel like you laser in on two of them that are not the parents and the kids, and those are the ones you focus on. Mm-hmm. And in my watch this time, that was Amanda Pete and Holland Taylor, and then Ellen Green in the third slot. <laughs> it's just everything that came out of her mouth in this movie was just like, are, are, you, are you down? I am saying it without saying it, I am the most down. Yeah, every woman in that office Every woman in the movie wants him. Oh yeah, even Holland Taylor, even Helen Green. I think even especially Ellen Green. It's at one point when, when they're in the car, when they're in Ellen Green's town car together, Ellen Green's body language, she might as well be saying, my husband's in Barbados. You want this? Like. My favorite was Holland Taylor on the phone with Michelle Pfeiffer after seeing him in person. And all she has to say is, he really is altogether yummy. I was just like, yes, Holland Taylor. You're all of us right now. I got to use that more in life. Um, yeah, I do love it that every woman in this movie 
is just down. They are down. I get it. If I were a woman in this movie, <laughs> me like, too. This this is very much sort of mid transition between ER Clooney and like Ocean's Eleven Daddy Clooney, mm-hmm. and it's it's a good peak. Like it's a it's a good transition period for him. Like hot dad, cute kid. That that is a type, and that box has been checked. Mm-hmm. Both of them. I mean, Michelle. Of course, is she's looks incredible. <laughs> this movie. I I did love that they very explicitly have George Clooney telling her she is the hottest woman he's ever seen. It's just like that's what she deserves. Thank you. I wrote that the soundtrack is basically a Starbucks love song compilation CD. Not mad at it, but you know. It is, like, I almost lean more toward, like, diner music. Okay. Because they have those 50s, 60s doo-wop songs going during Mm -hmm. all the important transitions, and then they'll kind of slow it down for one you may not know, and then it ramps right back up again, and I was just like, "I, I want a burger and a milkshake, and just have the soundtrack playing, please. Did you have... Do you have Waffle Houses where you are? Did you grow up with Waffle Houses? Yes. Texas Waffle Houses. Yes, 100%. Did your Waffle House have the jukeboxes in them? We were not a Waffle House family. We we were like an IHOP family more than anything if we were going to do one. So I truthfully don't know. I know we had Waffle Houses because you pass them by on the highway all the time, but I truthfully don't know if I've ever been in a Waffle House. Mm -hmm. Well, they had... At least Waffle Houses where I grew up, they had jukeboxes. And yeah, when you said that, it reminded me of the jukeboxes in Waffle House. Yeah. I think for sure, you would have had what a difference a day makes. And I'm sure we had one fine day. And, um, and isn't it romantic? And uh, I bet they even had the, I finally found someone for the first time. I'm sure they had that on there too. Yeah. Something I really do enjoy is... If it wasn't clear earlier, the movie is just short of 24-hour period that we're covering. And watching their romance happen over the course of that day feels shockingly natural. Again, sort of going back to like them just tiptoeing up to the line of suspension of disbelief. Because uh-huh. like you see them sort of attracted to each other through their just abject frustration and hatred for each other in that first scene Mm -hmm. uh, when he's made her late and they have to share a cab and he's pretending he's talking to a woman about her panties and Michelle Pfeiffer is about to lay hands on him. Mm -hmm. And it's just every time it's really fun watching her reaction when she sees him being sweet with Maggie Mm -hmm. and like when she sees him actually being a good dad you see those wheels start turning Mm -hmm. and sort of same with him. A a lot of this happens uh, right after they've missed the boat. Um, Mm -hmm. He says something really sweet to her and includes uh, Sammy in it. And you sort of see her reaction to that be kind of cool. And then when she's pulling all the magic stuff out of her purse there and at the daycare later, you sort of see him, responding with some respect and oh she's she's actually pretty pretty cool as well as hot yeah. uh, and so it's it's really well paced in terms of the beat of their 
relationship over the course of this day. It's it's very naturally progressed rather than them starting out hating each other and then making out at the halfway point and you're just like, but but why? Yeah, their attraction to each other seems to come from their parenting skills, would you say? And I think yes. that's that's really interesting. I don't think I've ever seen that kind of attraction manifest itself in a movie, maybe recently at least, but... Um, well, and they, they do set it up very early on that their respective ex-spouses were not good matches. Because um, even though he is a good dad, his ex-wife is very type A, which is what he originally assumes Michelle Pfeiffer is, and she is, but clearly not in the way his ex-wife was. And she, her husband is a complete and total deadbeat that, you know, promises the moon to his kid and never shows up. And so that's sort of her immediate impression of him, you know, being, being late and not really giving a damn about school and, and all of that is, oh, crap, another one. Yeah. Um, so then seeing watching them actually be good parents on top of it, which seems to be what was missing from their previous marriages, seems to be, as you said, really the, the kicker. And yeah, the, the attraction feels justified. You know, it's, it's, it's not a random, you know, oh, it's just hot. No, it's, it seems to come from real substance. And I'm, I'm thinking of that really sweet scene where Jack has made it to the daycare center before Melanie and Sammy, and he's doing his little puppet. Yes. Um, and that was the moment where, I was, where my heart melted for George Clooney. Where if, if I was Melanie, that would have been the moment that really touched me and really yeah. made me think twice about him. And yeah, it's not, it, it's not from such a carnal place. It's from something that feels really substantial. Um, yeah. And then they say that to each other. You know, I underestimated you. I thought you were one way, but you're this way. And yeah, there's the respect there for the way they take care of their kids and the way they look out for them. I was really, I liked how that came first. Absolutely. And when they end up fumbling with each other, with the other's kids, you know, when she loses Maggie at the at serendipity, and then when little Sammy gets a marble up his nose, they're like, oh my God, like, what is your mom? What is your dad going to say? Yeah. And I thought that was really cute. Um, and yeah, they're so worried by way of the other's children. You know, you're going you're gonna to turn this thing against me. You know, you put a marble up your nose. Now she'll never date me. Like, You definitely watch them become the other's parent for a day. And I did love how unbothered George Clooney was about Maggie. <laughs> being lost later in the film. He's just like, yeah, I, I, I lost her earlier. And she's like, could you maybe have told me that beforehand that she does this, just just walks off. And same with like the marble up the nose. She's like, oh yeah, Sammy's done that from time to time. <laughs> that little Yankee Yankee tool. <laughs> yeah. I love the cats in this movie. The cat in the drawer who eats the gold, the school fish. <laughs> and then the poor little kitty that Maggie steals from the antique shop. So sweet. And then I noticed that at the soccer game, that the kitty is just like hanging on to George Clooney. Oh, yeah. 
that cat's like, can I go back to the antique shop, please? <laughs> of course, there's no time to drop that kitten off, so the kitten's just got to come along. But um, it's funny, that almost stretched the credibility to me, where it's like, they're, they're, we're really running around with the fishbowl, we're really running around with cats, and oh, God, really? Okay. Maybe they're frazzled. Different from walking your dog in New York, I guess. Yeah, it was just a delight, and I, I think the movie really deserves to be held up alongside movies like You've Got Mail and When Harry Met Sally for like really comforting fall. It's not, it's not really like an autumn in New York feel type of movie, but it's kind of got that charming autumn in New York vibe to it that is really comforting to me. And that's what it, I kind of go for when I watch When Harry Met Sally or You've Got Mail. No, it, de it definitely feels like it belongs in that canon, but just hasn't really stuck. Yeah. Like, like the others have, mm -hmm. but like, like we were saying, it's, it's a very solid nineties rom-com. You, you just fall into it and it's super enjoyable and yeah, it, it definitely belongs with those other titles because it's, it's just as much fun. Yeah. It brought me a lot of comfort this week. Yeah. And it was really very surprising. I didn't have any, I didn't have any idea what this was going to be, you know? if I would like it or not. But um, yeah, it was really surprising how much I just, yeah, just fell right in there and so enjoyed it. And um, it's actually, did you, did you see, it was actually on Michelle's Known For on IMDb. I did not know that. Yeah, it's like Batman Returns. As it should be. What Lies Beneath, Age of Innocence, and One Fine Day, if I'm not mistaken. What an interesting spread. Yeah, I thought so too. I was like, okay, what an interesting, I mean, it hits kind of all her boxes right, in a you, way. You, you get all the genres in there at least. Oh, well, right now it seems like Batman Returns has been knocked off by Hairspray. I disapprove of that choice, IMDb. That is surprising to me, but you know, it, should, it really must have changed this week because I could swear to you that I saw Catwoman on there. I, I absolutely believe that, especially with it streaming on HBO right now. It's, mm -hmm. it's got to be up there in the algorithm, that mystical IMDb algorithm. And speaking of Catwoman, these kids at the, um, at the little Hunger Games playground, they literally said in their little Spider-Man and Hulk costumes, they're trying to fight this little Sammy. They didn't know they were dealing with Catwoman. They, they clearly had not seen Batman Returns, the nerve of them. I was like, who do you think you're talking to? Are you, are you crazy? <laughs> Show some respect, little boys. I also have fully decided since the Elizabeth Arden Salon is apparently where everyone in this movie goes during their day, uh, it, it is now my, my goal to just spend the day at Elizabeth Arden with both Ellen Green and Holland Taylor. What was that? It was spring, not spring equinox, like spring that little special like spa day they were having. Oh. Do you remember that? I would absolutely remember it had you not asked me point blank, but yes, I do remember that. I have never heard of that in my life. I was like- No. And it was, it's a weird word too, like kind of a, like, like spring, yeah, like spring equinox or kind of a <laughs> not very glamorous or pampery word. I was like, okay. 
It was just like having a having a spa day with those two would make my life better. I I believe. So before we move on to some awards talk, was there anything else about the movie itself that caught your eye? Oh yeah, there's actually there's a wonderful moment that she has, and I noticed that it was um her IMDb trivia that it was um, an improv moment, but it's at the very end when she's um when she decides that she needs to freshen up and she's um, backing away into the bathroom and she backs into the table and she has that little clumsy moment. That stuff in movies, I love the mistakes. It feels so real. And how Michelle carries it off, just chef's kiss, magic. I love that they kept it. And Mae Whitman had a little moment too where she forgot a name of something in a scene. I think George Clooney asks her, you know, what's what's this cat's name? And Mae Whitman can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) It's just an adorable. And the director was like, I'll keep it. See, that's what I love. Those little moments where um, they make just real magic and and make for a more human experience as you're watching. Because if I were Melanie Parker and I was about to get get down with George Clooney, (laughs) my whole room would be in shambles. I would be, I would be tripping over everything just clothes strewn about just my tv just capsized my i would be a wreck so um i loved it that's it was my favorite michelle moment in the movie i think i would agree with that like i said earlier i have a real soft spot for that police station meltdown that that that's probably my favorite one for her from, from this one so I personally wouldn't expect this one to be up for Oscar talk, but sort of, I think this one in terms of Golden Globes undoubtedly lands in comedy section because I was just taking a quick look through sort of the rom-com nominees of that age and like you had Meg Ryan for You've Got Mail and Sleepless in Seattle in her respective years. You had Julia Roberts for Notting Hill and My Best Friend's Wedding. And then later on, like, I sort of felt like Sandra Bullock's nomination for The Proposal, that role was very sort of close to what Michelle Pfeiffer is doing in in this movie. So I feel like, sort of like we said, in in a weaker, less just superstar studded musical comedy year, I think this would have been a perfect role to nominate her for and a deserved one to nominate her for. Yes, absolutely. And I wish that performances in these kinds of movies were able to get more of a toehold and find bigger awards awareness instead of just being relegated to the musical or comedy category. Because I think of, I mean, it's, and it's so subjective because because who's to say that you know one thing is better than the other but i think of like meg ryan and when harry met sally and that's to me a perfect performance why can't that be something that is as equally lauded as when somebody does a maybe has a tougher gig by being in a biopic right i i sort of I sort of think back to, did you see that Hollywood, um, Hollywood Reporter Roundtable with 
I think it's comedy TV actresses, the one uh, with Minnie Driver featured where she just point blank says comedy is harder. Comedy is, is harder to do than drama. And then Emmy Rossum gets salty and says they're both the same. And Minnie Driver gives her side eye that just replenishes all of my electrolytes. Leftover from Phantom of the Opera. 100%. This is not the time where we can talk about that off camera. But that's, um, but it's, it, it's inherently true. And I think especially for a movie to be funny, maybe even harder for some gigs than theater because doing comedy in theater, when you have that good audience and you can feed off the energy, it just ratches it, ratches it up. That is not a word, but I used it. But you know, flip side of, of theater, when you have a bad audience and you're doing a comedy and there is no laughter, that energy gets sucked out of the room within minutes and you know it and it sucks. Yes. But you know, you don't, in a comedy movie, you don't have that give and take. You don't have a barometer. You're, you're trusting your instincts and the director slash editor to do it correctly so that you, you get the laughs. So I think when you have something as well calibrated as Meg Ryan and when Harry met Sally, I, Julia Roberts should have been nominated for an Oscar for my best friend's wedding. I think that is possibly the most pitch perfect 90s rom-com performance in, in the canon. But as you said, when it comes to it just feels like it gets put under the rug for drama more often than not, unless you are a Meryl Streep and Devil Wears Prada. It, it, it feels like comedy roles have to have some kind of... Well, even the second <sighs> Leah Roberts in Pretty Woman, how she skated in there for the Oscar nomination. And I think maybe that was just because it was a big, a big break. Like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman you could not ignore that. It was, it, it was that huge. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Devil Wears Prada was sort of Meryl's welcome back into the lead actress fold because she had the adaptation nom and supporting in, in 02, but she hadn't had that lead actress since 97? Yeah, Whenever One True Thing was. It had, it had been a much longer time between her lead nominations than she'd ever had. Same for Diane Keaton and Something's Gotta Give. Like there was very much a, oh, Diane Keaton's really great in this comedy movie and she's naked and she hasn't been nominated in years. Like it feels like younger comedy actresses, younger comedy performances have a much harder time gaining traction for the Oscars. They, they will always be overlooked for dramatic performances, which is just not, not the correct call all the time. No, because it's just, yeah, like you said, it's, it's oftentimes a much harder task. I even think of like Kristen Wiig and Bridesmaids. Like, and I was thinking Emma Stone and Easy A. Like, oh yeah, the, a great example too. Yeah, it's like they're perfectly tuned in those films. They're two great examples. And yeah, why does that not get recognition? I imagine it was a harder thing for Kristen Wiig to have to figure out, you know, that the shit in the street, the, the airplane, the, the, bri the, the bridal gown scene. It's sort of like circling back to the, the comedy nominees. I just, 
I mean, this had been three years since her Love Field nomination. And once again, it just feels like with Madonna, Glenn Close, Frances McDormand, Debbie Reynolds, Barbara Streisand, you're not going to knock anyone out of that lineup. It just, it doesn't feel like the slot was there for, for this one, unfortunately. Because I think she is very, yeah, out of all her 1996 output, this one is my favorite. And I think it's the performance that I would have submitted for her. Okay. So give, give me your, your ranking of, of the three we watched. To, to Jillian, Up Close and Personal, One Fine Day. What, what is your ranking of the three? It's then to Jillian at the bottom, Up Close and Personal, and One Fine Day. And in terms of ranking her performances in those three, is it the same ranking? Yes. See, I am 100% I am with you on the movie ranking. That is the correct order. I do feel like I would still, I, I, I think Up Close and Personal is, is her better performance for me. They're very close to each other. I enjoy them both vastly more than to Jillian. But I, I do think sort of like we said, just that glow she has in Up Close and Personal, I, I, I think it just scooches by this one for me. I figured that would be your case since I know you liked Up Close and Personal more than I did. So I'd say yeah. if there's any roles that are going to go neck and neck, it's going to be Melanie or Telly. They're going to be- Most definitely. Oh. It's so interesting to see her, to see how her 1996 shaped up to be. I mean, she got three hunky men to make out with. Peter Gallagher, Robert Redford, George Clooney. You could die a happy woman right there. So yeah. her hair didn't really change that much. Well, <laughs> some personal, maybe went through the most, but it still is about the bob. It's very about the bob in 1996. Yeah, she had a really... She had a really interesting year. <laughs> they're all very, well, clearly they're all very different movies, but they're also very different roles. She, she does get to mm -hmm. do, do a lot of stretching over the course of the three. Yeah. She gets to play a ghost. She gets to have her, <laughs> to have her drama moments in Up Close and Personal, and she gets to be a romantic comedy leading lady. And all of them... I feel like maybe we touched on this in Up Close and Personal, but all of them are present day, which is interesting considering the films she had done previously. It was interesting that all three released, none of them were period films, which is sort of a trademark of, of hers. So does that mean we are ready for Six Degrees of Michelle Pfeiffer? Yes, I am. Do you, do you want to give or do you want to receive? I'll, um, I'll receive first. Okay. So I, I decided to like go on a little, a little trek to find my person. So I wanted to do a George Clooney co-star since that's who we talked about in this episode. And so I went with his out of sight co-star, Miss Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer Lopez. Okay. She did quite a few things with Ben Affleck, Made in Manhattan is with Ray Fiennes. I don't know if any of her hustlers co-stars are going to help me get there, but let's see. Is it too easy to even be like, you know, 
it's too easy to even be like, well, Jennifer Lopez was in Out of Sight with George Clooney, who was in One Fine Day with Michelle Pfeiffer, but let's see if we can. Um, I, I expect better from you, good, good sir. Can I just, can I just cheat? Um, let's see. I'm like, I'm trying between Ben Affleck and Ray Fiennes in my mind to see where it can take me. Okay, so Jennifer Lopez was in Made in, Made in Manhattan with Ray Fiennes, mm-hmm. who was um, in the Harry Potter movies. Yes. With um, Helena Bonham Carter, who was in Dark Shadows. Oh, bringing out Dark Shadows, well played. I know she's in that movie. I forget about that movie all the time. And it's October. Like, this is the month where I, sh- I should be remembering that Dark Shadows is a property that exists, and I just don't. <laughs> but we will be watching it at some point. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm well aware because I look at that filmography, and I'm like, okay, I see a couple on here that are, I'm going to have to. Yep. Already. So mine for you is a grand dame. Uh, okay. <laughs> a grand dame of cinema. Um, and that is Dame Maggie Smith, Miss Jean Brody herself. Okay. Okay. So Pfeiffer was in the, um, huh. Pfeiffer was in Frankie and Johnny with Pacino. Yes. Who was in The Godfather with Diane Keaton. Who was in The First Wives Club with Dame Maggie Smith. Good. Fork. (laughs) I love that you brought up one of the best parts of The Godfather movies, Diane Keaton. Yes. Now that's the best supporting actress nominee I could have gotten behind. I... I need to look back at at 72 and remember who who her competitors were because I'm I'm also the fact that 17 men from the Godfather got nominated that year and they were just like Matthias Keaton you can take several seats is beyond me. We didn't know no Robert Redford embarrassment this time around. I that's going to go down as probably my favorite. <laughs> um Six Degrees of Michelle Pfeiffer. I don't know if that can ever be topped, so I'm just going to hold it in my heart until that day happens. <laughs> uh, okay, Pfeiffer fans, this has been another episode of Pfeiffer Fridays, as well as the conclusion of our 1996 miniseries. I am Jerry Downey, and you can follow me on Twitter at jerrydowney913 and on Letterboxd at the same name. And I am Michael McLean, and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd at Michael D. McLean. Please remember to rate and review us or follow, like us on Twitter at Pfeiffer Fridays. It makes us easier to find so we can continue to spread the Michelle gospel to one and all. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you again next week for Fight for Fridays.
Michael, why can I not stop this phone? You have it like on like the like the stopwatch page, right? Yes. And you're pressing stop? I am pressing stop. This is very much like something that would happen in one fine day, I think. This is awful. You know, like, um, maybe like Melanie or Jack's like alarm would not stop ringing. God. For fuck's sake, y'all. <laughs>